So this morning I'm getting to the last message that we're doing in this series that I've been running through Lent. So if if you're new with us, visiting with us, what I've been doing through this entire season of Lent is I've been tracing through the miracles of Jesus, particularly as they come to us from the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, there happen to be seven of those miracles that take place. I've said this all the way along, but here's your your 10-second recap of how this goes, right? John is divided into two sections. The first half of John's gospel are all the events of Jesus' life and ministry. The entire second half of John's gospel is Palm Sunday to Easter, one week. So all of those miracles that we looked at in that first section all point to that second section. Everything that we've been looking at the past 40 days of Lent leads up to what we see and acknowledge and gather for here today, Easter. And so there's one more miracle. I've gone through six of them, but today we get to the seventh that takes place. And it's a resurrection story with one of Jesus' friends, Lazarus. Now, you don't need a Ph.D. in theology to make some connections here today. At least I hope you don't. We're going to talk about a story about resurrection on Easter, Resurrection Day. I think we can sort of connect some dots and see where Jesus is pointing us with this Lazarus story. What he's pushing us ahead towards to see with that. So we do that in a way that brings that out. But this takes place in John chapter 11. John 11 is a long chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to focus in on a few verses out of that. However, let me fill in the details so you know what story we're going with here, right? The story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. It begins this way, that Lazarus lives in the small village of Bethany. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, if you remember, is the capital of of Israel. So all of the Jewish religious capital things, the temple would take place there, all of the officials would live there, all of that in Jerusalem. Bethany is about two miles away from that. Two miles, now even in that day, before you had cars and transportation, two miles was something that was easily walkable. Something where, if you think of it in our landscapes of cities today, something two miles from downtown would be the suburb, right? That's maybe a helpful way to think of the village of Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem. You could easily walk from Bethany to Jerusalem in under an hour. So many people would be back and forth from Jerusalem to Bethany that way. It was close by. That's where Lazarus lived. That's where Lazarus is when he falls ill and he dies in his home in the village of Bethany. When Lazarus is ill, Lazarus has two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they send for Jesus because they know what Jesus can do. They know that Jesus can heal, but Jesus is not near them. What Jesus has done, he he had been there recently. He had been there for the Feast of Tabernacles, and he had gotten into a lot of trouble with the religious authorities while he was in the area. So he withdrew to another place. Jesus at this time is across the Jordan River, which would be to the east of Jerusalem, across the Jordan River, in the area where John the Baptist used to baptize people. So this was away from Jerusalem, past the city of Jericho, over the Jordan River. He was a considerable distance away. But they send word. Martha and Mary do. They send word for Jesus. Lazarus, your dear friend Lazarus is ill. 
This is not the kind of sickness that you get better from. This is the kind of sickness that is fatal. It ends in death. It's urgent. That's how it comes as a message to Jesus. Jesus receives the message where he is in that remote place across the Jordan River, and he stays put. It's an urgent crisis situation. It's a medical trauma emergency. But Jesus stays where he is for two more days, just staying put. Finally, after two days, he says to his disciples, all right, it's time. Let's go to our friend Lazarus. Now, here's where his disciples cut in. The disciples cut in and say, wait a minute, Jesus, Lazarus, the one who lives in Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem, do you remember what happened the last time we were there? You're a wanted man there. They are trying to kill us. And you want to go back there? They want to be sure. Did we hear you right? Yes, we are going to our friend Lazarus. So off they go. And, and it's Thomas, one of Jesus' disciples, who gives the comment and the reply to that. Let's go with him. We might as well all die together. That's what they thought they were walking into. This is it. It's over. So they go. And while they're on the way, while they're getting close, they get word. Mary and Martha get word. Jesus is coming. He's on the way. Martha's the one who actually runs out to meet him before he even gets into the town. And Martha says to him, Jesus, if only you had been here a little sooner, he's already dead. You're too late. Now there's, there's a bit of a twist in that statement, isn't there? On the one hand, it's a statement of belief. Belief in that Martha knew, Jesus, I know that you have the power to heal. I know that you could do something. But on the other hand, it's a statement that's almost maybe even a little resentful of, but you're too late. You waited too long. Where were you? We needed you then. And now he's gone. As Jesus continues to come along the way then, Mary gets word that Jesus is there. So she comes out to meet as well, and the same scene happens over again. Jesus, if only you had been here sooner, then my brother would not have died. That same statement again. Now, all of the others who are gathered in that village of Bethany to, to mourn the loss of Lazarus, they, they see that Martha and Mary go out, and, and so the crowd kind of follows along with them. And, and now there's a crowd with them around Jesus. And this is where Jesus takes that moment to say, show me the tomb where he is. Let's go. Let's see it. So they all go together to the tomb of Lazarus. That's where I'm going to pick what we're going to read today. So, from John chapter 11... And I'm just going to begin at verse 38 and read a few verses into that, okay? John chapter 11, beginning at verse 38. Here's the scene as it continues to unfold from there. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor for it has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone 
Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. And I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Resurrection. Resurrection is where we are at today. Resurrection is is where all of these stories and all of these miracles, all of these signs, all of these wonders that Jesus has been performing, they all point to this moment. They all lead to this conclusion. Resurrection. So we've looked at so many of those miracles through the Gospel of John as they all point towards this one event. You remember what those were as we went through them? Those Six miracles prior to this one. It began with the first two miracles that took place in the village of Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, and then he healed the royal official's child. And those two stories, when we looked at those, we said we noted the ways in which Jesus uses those two miracles, those two events, to focus on belief and faith. That every time with those two miracles, the response of the people was they believed, they came to faith in Jesus. So it begins with that. It begins with Jesus revealing himself in a way that people see and believe and have faith. From there, we went to the third miracle where Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he heals the man who's paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda. If you remember that, it happens to take place on a Sabbath and then there's trouble. The man who's healed picks up his mat and he walks home, but walking with your mat on your shoulder on the Sabbath broke the law. And so he's cornered for it. And Jesus, in that miracle, in that instant, steps in and takes his place. Now Jesus will be the one who's guilty in place of the man who's healed. So we see a miracle in which John unfolds for us, the way in which Jesus steps in and takes the guilt in our place. Then the next two miracles that take place after that are back north again in Jesus' home region of Galilee. This is where he feeds the 5,000 people using five loaves and two fish, and he goes to meet his disciples in a boat out on the lake by walking on the water to get to them there. We looked at these stories, and we noted the way that these stories reenact some Old Testament history. Historical events in Israel like manna in the wilderness and parting of the sea so that God's people could safely travel from one side to the other. That this takes place during the celebration of Passover when all the people would be remembering those events. Jesus does that in a way of showing his fulfillment of the law. That Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture where all of the law and all of the prophets point forward to that. And then just last week, we saw that sixth miracle that Jesus does in the Gospel of John. He heals a man who's blind, blind from birth, has never had sight his entire life. 
but Jesus gives him sight. And he does this in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacles, when the feast would be celebrated with lights. That's when they would light the entire temple courtyard at night. So John, John who begins his gospel way back in John chapter 1, John gives Jesus a title, a name, right? The word become flesh, the light of the world. And then in this sixth miracle, circles back again to that theme of light, that Jesus is light. And not only is Jesus light, but he gives sight to those who are lost in darkness so that they may see his light. All of those miracles, all those things that we've seen, all pointing forward, pointing That brings us to this last one that we see today. Lazarus. Resurrection. That Jesus is pointing us forward to resurrection. And he's making the connection, isn't he? We've noted that all the way along. There's a connection here. Making a connection to his own resurrection, to be sure. But I want us to notice something a little bit more in this as well that these two resurrection stories are connected in other ways. Connected in ways where if you were to continue reading through John 11, past where we left off today, that this event, the resurrection of Lazarus, was the event that finally pushes it over the top for the religious authorities who put out a warrant for his execution. Up until this time, Jesus has been getting into trouble. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the rulers, they were looking for ways to arrest him. They were keeping their eyes open, looking to trap him in his own words, finding an opportunity when they could pounce. Now, with the resurrection of Lazarus, they're past that. We aren't going to be looking anymore. Put the warrant out. Arrest him on sight. Bring him in. We're going to execute him. The event which gives life to Lazarus becomes the event which leads to death for Jesus. Do you see the connection there? That by giving life to the one who is dead, Jesus gives his life in order to do that. John is pointing us towards that. He's pointing us towards the way in which these resurrection stories are connected in ways that are not only the resurrection, but but connected with everything that Jesus did in his sacrifice as well. That when Jesus died on the cross, the guilt of our sin died there with him. Something of us died along with Jesus. So that... When Jesus rose to new life, we have new life with him as well. That's how the connection works. That's what John is pointing us toward. That's where this resurrection story is going. That the dying and rising of Jesus is the event that points to our own dying and rising for those who believe in him. Resurrection then is it's the most profound part of the Christian faith. Profound in the sense that if you read further into the Gospels, the Apostle Paul, when the Apostle Paul travels around preaching the news about Jesus, and one particular scene in the book of Acts, Jesus, uh, Paul comes to 
Mars Hill, where he meets Greek philosophers. And he sees there on Mars Hill that they have all of these altars set up to all of their pagan gods in that time. And there's one altar there that is marked to the unknown god, just to make sure we didn't miss any, right? That was their thinking. Paul takes the opportunity. Hey, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God that you have this altar set up for. So they all listen. And Paul explains the entire thing. This Jesus of Nazareth who came and he lived and he taught and he lived a perfect life. And he even laid his own life down for those he came for and who he loved and who he followed. And then, after three days, Jesus rose victorious from the grave. And that was the moment where all of those Greek philosophers said, what? Came back to life from the dead? I think we're done here, Paul. That doesn't happen. I was with you the whole way up till that part where you said he came back from the grave. And that's where they laughed and turned him away. Resurrection is the most profound part of our Christian faith, and and for some it's the most difficult thing to grasp. I suppose that makes sense. And people don't just come back from the dead. But we consider what that looks like today. Consider in the Bible all of the eyewitness accounts that we have. People who saw and testified that they saw Jesus after his crucifixion. Alive, walking, talking, teaching them. There were eyewitness accounts of what happened. That news of that eyewitness account spread and the gospel spread and people came to believe in Jesus and that gospel spread throughout the entire world where people heard the message and came to believe in Jesus. And as the gospel spread, as the church was born, as the church grew and persecution would go against it and people would try to snuff that movement out, still it grows to the point of people being imprisoned or tortured, or executed because of their belief in a resurrection? Would people do that unless it was actually true? It really happened. And they wrote about it. The gospel writers wrote about this story of Jesus and all the letters of the New Testament, and they copied those writings over and over again, and eventually they worked their way into our Bible as the New Testament, and for over a thousand years, those letters were hand-copied, written over and over again, and spread around so that the Bible, the Word of God, would make its way out. And it's only been within the last 100 years that the most significant archaeological discoveries of biblical text have been made, that the oldest and most complete and most reliable manuscripts of the Bible have only been discovered within the last century. Yet somehow, when those ancient manuscripts line up with what we have passed down and continue to hold as our Bible today, it is remarkably solid, consistent, that it comes to us in a way which has remained faithful and persisted. How would that happen? Unless it's actually true. Unless it really did take place. We follow this story of resurrection in a way where we know there is truth behind it. 
You know, there, there's been story and there's been emphasis recently on conspiracy theories. That you, because we have the internet today, conspiracy theories are everywhere, right? And as conspiracy theories abound, evidence is given to debunk that, or you find that conspiracy theories that as they twist and turn, they, they start turning in different directions and falling apart, and there's nothing that really remains intact about it. And they come and they go, but as it goes with conspiracy theories, when it's a conspiracy theory, so it's not actually true, it doesn't last. Oh, it has its moment for a while, but it fades away. There's nothing new about that. So if this resurrection story were a conspiracy theory, why has it lasted 2,000 years? Why would it still be around unless it's not a conspiracy? But there's truth there that it actually happened. Resurrection is something then that we bring forward in ways that connect to who we are. Consider how this works, that in all of those things, that we follow something that is more than a teaching, more than a doctrine. When you think about it that way, you think about all the other religions of the world, Hinduism or Buddhism, all all these religions of the world that are built on teachings, right? Teachings and philosophies, on doctrines, on propositions. But we have a Christian faith that is founded on events. That Christianity, at its core, is a faith that is not a teaching or a philosophy or a way of seeing the world. Christianity, at its core, is an event. Christianity happens because resurrection happened. We see that then in a way where we not only believe in resurrection, we live resurrection, right? We, we live as resurrection people. And we do this in a way that declares how that resurrection still connects with us yet today. Now, I, I know that when we think of resurrection, maybe in our own context, in our own time, in our own livelihoods, that, that maybe we point to resurrection as this future event. And you know what? The Apostle Paul does that too in some ways. Consider these words that come from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says this about resurrection. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Paul points to resurrection then as a reality for all of us, all of God's people, everyone who's a part of his Christian faith, that we are all part of that resurrection. And in a passage like that, he points to it as something that will have its eventual fulfillment. But that doesn't mean that there's part of resurrection that hasn't happened already. In us, I mean, that we live as resurrection people now. That something of this resurrection has already taken place in us. Because you consider that the Apostle Paul elsewhere in Scripture, for Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, for example, Paul does, Paul does not say 
for it is by grace you will be saved. He's not pointing to a future event. No, in something like Ephesians 2, Paul says, for it is by grace that you have been saved. You've already got it. It's already there. It's already won for you. This resurrection thing that we're talking about, you know what? It's already locked in. It's a guarantee. It is going to happen, and you know what? Nothing can stop it or change it because that's how resurrection works. We point towards that, and we acknowledge that, you know what? You and I, we are already granted the status of resurrection people right now. The seeds of resurrection have already been planted and sprouts of that already begin pushing up. There's already evidence of it in God's people. Consider this, if we were to push a little further forward in the Gospel of John, one of the things that we read in John is is the way that Jesus prays for his disciples on his way to the cross. That before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays. And John records significant portions of, of what Jesus prayed for. Listen to this part from John 17 of what Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays this. My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. This resurrection status that has been placed upon you and me, this resurrection status that we now have as a part of who we are, not just something we learn about or believe, but something we live because it happened. That resurrection status sees evidence in us, in the church, even now today. Even now in who we are as resurrection people. These things that Jesus prayed for, for grace, for love, for unity, all expressions of who we are. And we do those things. We do those things together, not because it's an obligation, but we do those things together because we embrace resurrection as a part of who we are. And so as resurrection people, we come before God in that way, knowing that we are called then to a ministry, a ministry of reconciliation, which brings us forward in resurrection and points to that resurrection when one day, we will all be together with Jesus in complete unity forever.
Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the message of your word. We thank you for the resurrection that you bring, and we thank you that this is a resurrection that already has taken root now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would show us how we may continue to live and move forward as your resurrection people. Lord, give us the faith to walk forward in that. Lord, give us the endurance to acknowledge what that resurrection means for us. And Lord, we pray that in times when, when maybe we may struggle because the tomb still seems so real and so near, remind us again that you have conquered death for us so that we may be forever your resurrection people. Give us hope in that. We thank you for that. We thank you for the victory over the grave that we celebrate that you've given us today. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.